asking the right question can greatly impact your future. So are you working with a certified financial planner, a CFP professional? Certified financial planner certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I sat down this week with Bill Gates. Uh, No, no, not that one. But another Bill Gates who I think you'll agree is well worth your time. As a leader of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors in Arizona, Gates, a Republican, endured a furious barrage of false charges, cries of betrayal, even death threats after the board certified Joe Biden as the winner, narrowly clinching for Biden the swingiest of swing states. The ordeal and its aftermath took a toll on Gates and his family and led him to seek treatment for what was diagnosed as PTSD. As we prepare for what promises to be another combustible campaign, this Bill Gates, who has shown such admirable courage in standing up for the integrity of the election system, is someone you should know. Here's our conversation. Bill Gates, it's great to see you. For those who have joined to hear a discussion about computers and philanthropy, uh, you probably tuned in to hear the wrong Bill Gates, but instead we're talking to Bill Gates, who played a significant role in uh, a very difficult period in our history uh, at some great personal sacrifice. So your story is the one I'm interested in, and I'm so happy to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. It's a real honor, and uh, look forward to to chatting with you today. Yeah. Well, let's chat about you, the real Bill Gates. Tell me a, a little bit about your background, your family. I know you moved around quite a bit before you landed in Arizona. Tell me about all of that. Yeah, sort of uh, similar, I think, to the stories of a lot of people who have ended up here in in, uh, in Arizona in Maricopa County. Uh, as a kid, I uh, moved around a lot. My dad was in uh, nuclear power, so oh, wow. you know, go build the nuclear power plant and move to the to, to the next place. Many many states: Washington State, Louisiana, Michigan. Uh, Colorado, but landed here for high school. And so spent four years in high school here, which was the longest I'd lived anywhere. And this was the late eighties. This was the the Reagan era. And this is when I really uh, became particularly focused on, on politics and the world around me. And so what was your family, was your family, was that discussed at the dinner table? Was it, what is it that drew you in? I know you've described yourself as a kind of political geek as a kid. And I, that speaks to me as I was one as well, but um, I'm wondering what it is that sort of captured your, your fancy. Yeah, I was always surrounded by it. In fact, my very first memory of politics was the 1976 election. And I remember my parents paying close attention to that presidential election. And so, you know, I heard a lot about this, my dad being a nuclear power. I actually, as a kindergarten student, I stood up in my class and a lot of people, we were living in Eastern Washington, the Hanford Nuclear Reservation. And so I stood up and, and, and told them that they need to go home and tell all their parents to vote for President Ford. Because if they didn't, their parents were all going to lose their jobs. <laughs> and so that's <laughs> my, uh, yeah, my kindergarten yeah, how'd your teacher, kindergarten teacher uh, receive that. 
she was amazed and took me into the teacher's lounge and had me repeat this to all of the, the <laughs> teachers. So, uh, you know, I, I, I really, you know, I've said I, I registered as a Republican in 18, started the teenage Republican club at my high school. But actually, yeah, my Republican roots do go back to that 1976 election. When you were, what, four or five years old? Yeah, I was five years old. So yeah. it was, you know, I was surrounded by it. My my grandpa, who couldn't be prouder of, World War II vet, and I would go over and visit him, and I would have to have, I, I started reading the newspaper at a very young age, but I had to read it extra close when I went out to see my grandpa because he would quiz me. He's like, okay, how about that article on A13? You know, what are your <laughs> thoughts on this? That's tough. Yeah, I mean, high school education, you know, just a high school education. He also uh, spent a lot of his career in nuclear power. He was a welding superintendent out here at Palo Verde Nuclear Generating Station. So, yeah, I, I was always sort of surrounded by this and um, and loved it. I mean, loved it from a very young age. And you went to college at, at Drake University in uh, in Des Moines. Uh, and, you know, I, I actually went to the University of Chicago because I, it was four years after that sort of cataclysmic convention in Chicago in 1968. And I thought Chicago was such an interesting political town, you know, and that's one of the reasons I went to the University of Chicago. Apparently, politics drew you to Drake as well. That's absolutely right. One of the main reasons that I went there was because of, of course, the Iowa caucuses that I had followed uh, throughout my childhood. And I thought, oh, this will be great. I can be involved in all of this. Unfortunately, it didn't work out the way that, yeah, there, there was none that had to be the, the quietest caucus ever 1992, (laughs) of course, uh, George HW Bush is running for reelection. So no action on the Republican side. And then you had Senator Tom Harkin, the, the Iowa Senator running on the democratic side. Although I do remember that, that president Clinton did make at least one visit uh, there, but yeah, there was basically no action. So I, I yeah. was disappointed, but I did, was very active in the college of Republicans and met a lot of people then who then took, you know, positions in the Bush, uh, Bush, George W. Bush white house, um, people like Terry Nelson, uh, and, uh, Sarah, Sarah Fagan, who you, who you may know. Yeah, sure. Um, right. And I met them all through my college. So, so I still got some of that connection, but it was not what I've certainly heard the, the sort of, um, uh, incredible tales you hear about meeting one-on-one with all of the candidates in the, oh, yeah. in the caucus. No, I, you know, I'm, uh, I've spent a lot of time in, in, in Iowa and I've, uh, it's, it's quite a, it's quite an event when it's, it's engaged. The truth is in 2092, George HW Bush kind of bypassed the Iowa caucus because Pat Buchanan was running and he, and he damn near That's beat true. him in, in New Hampshire. I think uh, Bush was worried about getting ambushed in uh, Iowa as he was in 88 uh, yeah. when Pat Robertson uh, uh, ran. So That's true. That's right. Uh, but uh, And then you, you went to a school in the East har- uh, called Harvard uh, Law did. School. I mean, obviously, it's a very esteemed school. What what attracted you there? Um, so I was, uh, uh, I mean, for me, it was one of these deals where, you know, I said, hey, let's let's see the kind of the best law schools I can get into. I never really spent much time on the East Coast. And I, I was fortunate enough to be admitted. And my dad sat me down and said, that's where you're going. You got into Harvard. You got to go. 
And, yeah. uh, it, it was, it was really that simple. And, um, I didn't know, you know, as a conservative Republican, if I would find many, uh, yeah. you know, people of, of similar ilk, but I did, I was fortunate enough to, to participate in what we call the conservative trifecta there, which is Harvard Law School Republicans, the Federalist Society, and the uh, Journal for Law and Public Policy. Uh, am I right in assuming that Ted Cruz may have been there when you were there? So Ted Cruz, I didn't meet him there. I think he was uh, 95 grad, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, so right? I was 96. But I can tell you while I was there um, in a Federalist Society meeting, Ken Starr came. Now, this was before uh, the whole Monica Lewinsky saga, shortly before that. But uh, he came and spoke, and actually, there were probably about ten of us who went out and had a nice Chinese meal uh, with Ken Starr, and you know, thoroughly enjoyed that. And um, so, again, I, I'll put my conservative credentials up against anyone. Although now I know those are in, in question with a lot of my fellow Republicans these days. But this is this was my background. You've already put yourself in jeopardy by disclosing that you were for Ford over Reagan when you were five. So uh, I'm sure someone will note that. But uh, you, you we went back to Phoenix uh, after law school. You practiced uh, law at a firm uh, for a while. And then you took a job at a, uh, a manufacturer, a golf equipment manufacturing firm. I guess you're still associated with the same firm? Yes, yes. So um, Ping Golf, uh, been there for 22 years. Once I moved into elected office, I did move into a part-time position mm -hmm. uh, to be able to do my um, uh, elected position as well. But just, you know, a wonderful local manufacturer here, one of the largest golf manufacturers in the world and a family-owned business. And uh, just has been really a great opportunity to be a part of a, uh, a manufacturer that employs about a thousand people here, you know, doing building golf clubs in America. I don't want to jump ahead in the story, and we'll come back to this in much greater detail. But when you became the sort of target of ire by the sort of Trump right, was this a, a concern to your employer? Did Were there discussions about, gee, I wish you'd keep this on the down low, or we're going to have to kind of put you on the back burner? Or how did they react to you becoming kind of a uh, celebrity target? They have always been... Uh you know, incredibly supportive of me, uh, of my uh, involvement in the community and in elected office. And, and it was no different, even though there were folks that were boyc literally boycotting Ping um, because of my employment there. Uh, some people, you know, shot some videos of, of folks throwing their Ping golf clubs in the lake because Bill Gates works there. Uh, but they, they were always very supportive because they they knew that I was just doing my job and yeah. uh, I, I'm so grateful to them for that, uh, for that support. That's important to have that support. So you knew what, did you know when you early on, when you returned to Phoenix, that you wanted to be engaged politically, that you might run for office? Was that something that was in your head? That was, I didn't know if I would actually run for office, but I knew that I wanted to be involved in the community, wanted to work on campaigns. And I did that. I worked on several campaigns here uh, over the years, including Jam Brewer, who I'm, I'm very close with Jam Brewer, actually went to- Former governor. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, actually went to high school with her son. And he and I started the Teenage Republican Club back in the 1980s at Deer Valley High School. And I was interested that as through the Maricopa Republican Party, I guess, you organized poll watchers in 2008 uh, in the uh, in the 
I assume the presidential race was the the key race there. McCain and Obama were running. There's it's some irony in that in that you know you became the target of people who's who made accusations, unfounded accusations about the integrity of the election. You're as a volunteer, you were sending people out to try and ensure the integrity of the election. That that's absolutely right. I did that th- four cycles, oh two, oh four, oh six, and oh eight, and. In 06 and 08, I actually ran and organized the program for the Arizona Republican Party. And, um, you know, this was very important. And we always talked about this, too. We were not there to intimidate voters, although, frankly, we were, you know, uh, we we were accused of this. Right. I was accused of this. Uh, my colleagues were accused of this. But it's very important. We are not there to intimidate anyone. We want to make sure that every eligible vote was counted. We wanted to make sure that all the election laws were uh, were, were being followed, uh, whether in Maricopa County or one of the other 14 counties here in Arizona. So I never could have imagined that uh, that I would be facing these accusations from fellow Republicans many years later. In uh, 2009, you ran for the city council, which is something that's close to my heart. I'm a former city hall bureau chief and used to do a lot of races for mayors. always thought local government was the most interesting in some ways because it's the closest uh, to people. But I'm wondering why you chose. Uh, that's a long way from the Federalist Society at Harvard and, and the uh, Harvard. Those people mostly think about being senators and, and governors and presidents and Supreme Court justices. I, I don't know that they generally think about the city council. I think, you know, around that time, you started to see more conservatives focusing on local government, understanding that this is an an area that had really been ignored. State legislative races and local races, we started seeing more of a focus on that as we got into into the 2000s. And for me, I knew that I wanted to give back. I love this community, right? I've, I've, I've lived in so many different places. And I, I, I love this community and where I think the potential is. And at that point, we had two daughters. And so I, I thought at city council level, I could probably move the needle more than anywhere else to try and make this a community our daughters would want to come back to, right, once they, they had gone to college. And I knew that this was a position I could continue to work in the private sector and be able to do the job. And my uh, employer, who I went to and said, hey, would you guys support me going part time? They said, absolutely. So the planets aligned. uh, And I now, having worked 14 years, served 14 years in local government, I love it. I think this is I really do think this is where the action is. Yeah. Well, maybe a little too much action. uh, That's right. But you 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 ran in 2016 for the County Board of Supervisors. What made you want to make that switch? Because that's where life became a lot more challenging for you. So the irony of this was, you know, Phoenix City Council was a lot of fireworks, uh, Mm -hmm. as you know, you know, having that background, actually. And um, and it was a very tumultuous time on the council. You started seeing things, although it's nonpartisan, becoming a lot more partisan. So when I decided to move to the county, people said, oh, that that's good, Bill. It'll be a lot calmer <laughs> over there, a lot quieter. But but to but to answer your question in a serious way, the more work I did on things at the Phoenix City Council, I saw that the issues that I cared the most about, whether air quality, economic development, transportation, these were really regional, regional questions and regional issues. And at the county level, 
you get to tackle it in that way. Maricopa County is the fourth largest county in the country, over 4.5 million residents. And so I thought that at that, you know, at the county level, I could, I could really have more of that regional impact and having this background in working on elections as a Republican lawyer. I was also, you know, silly me, I was drawn to the, the elections portion of the county portfolio. And uh, yeah, actually, you worked on a ref- on reforming the county election department with uh, Adrian Fountas, who's now the Secretary of State, Democrat, Secretary of State of Arizona. What was your goal in reforming the, the election department there? So for decades, all of the election responsibilities in Maricopa County had been in one person, one partisan elected official who had uh, historically been Republican. But in 2016, Adrian Fontes was the first Democrat to be elected in decades. And so there was a lot of pressure on this board to say, hey, you know, this shouldn't all be in the hands of one person. Wouldn't it be better to spread that authority and responsibility across six people, the the one recorder and then the five members of the board of supervisors? And this was a very touchy political issue. But I thought it was important. And so as chair in 2019, I sat down with Adrian Fontes. You can ask Adrian, but I think we had at least 15, 15 to 20 meetings over, you know, shakes. And we went to Shake Shack and, you know, all these different to try and hammer this thing out. Where all the great deals are made. Yeah, Where all the great deals are made, at least here in Maricopa County. And so we we got it done. And uh, and I, I was very, again, I had no idea what the future would bring. But we felt like that was vitally important because there was going to be, the, and, and we know in 2018, you had a lot of Republicans saying, hey, you know, Adrian Fontes rigged this election. He rigged it for Kirsten Cinema because as, as much of the country has gotten to know, oftentimes we may have one person leading an election on election night, but then as the yeah. votes continue to come in, it may flip. So the suggestion was even back then, well, you know, it's being rigged. Um, and so we felt that having, as we have now and as we had then, four Republicans, two Democrats leading this effort would, it would give people uh, more peace of mind that, hey, this is a true bipartisan effort being led by bipartisan uh, elected officials. A cynic, I guess, would say you guys decided when the Democrat got the job of overseeing the elections that Republicans saw virtue in spreading the authority around a, a cynic might say that and that may have actually been argued by some and I, and i understand that perspective but this is i i saw this as a reform that would stick you know and that this is the way that we would march forward and by the way what we did really was just to go back to the statutory alignment that was already put in place by uh, the arizona legislature decades ago it's just that the board of supervisors had ceded its statutory authority to the recorder and just sort of the, hey, why don't you handle it all? Let us know how it goes. We'll approve the budget, but we're not going to get so tactically involved. That, that turned out to be a fateful decision for you because the sharing of authority meant the sharing of the burden as well. Uh, when 2020 rolled around, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So are you working with a certified financial planner? 
a CFP professional who meets rigorous education, training, and ethical standards, and is committed to serving your best interests to prepare you for a more secure future? Certified Financial Planner Certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's Chief Medical Correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. One of the things I'm interested in is just how well-motivated public officials trying to do their job dealt personally with the byproduct of the rage of our time. You faced another crisis, which was the pandemic. Tell me about that, because that was, that was really when you began being targeted in a way that was beyond what people were accustomed to in politics. Yeah, that that really was when I would say everything changed. Um, generally, kind of having this reputation as a conservative Republican, uh, had, had never had a primary up to that point, never been challenged in the primary. And then we also are the public health authority here at Maricopa County. And as I think most people know who followed these things, uh, Maricopa County, Arizona were hit very hard by COVID. Uh, and we had some of that, some of the highest rates in the country. And so once we hit the summer of 2019, our public health officials came to us and said, we are recommending a mask mandate for Maricopa County. And that was a tough boat for all of us, but particularly the four Republicans. But we made the boat because we looked at our experts and they told us, we needed to do this to save lives. We knew that was that was a controversial decision. We had, frankly, a lot of mayors who were calling us, asking us to take this action because they didn't want to have to make these tough votes in their jurisdictions. And I felt that it was important that we had this. You know, we 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 took we took this burden on. I mean, Maricopa County is the second largest public health authority in the country after New York and L.A. Um, so there are a lot of lives on the line and, um, uh, you know, as the third, as the third largest after New York and LA, we, we took that seriously, but, um, I, even though knowing that this would be controversial, it did not prepare me for what would come shortly after that vote on the mass mandate, uh, the mailboxes in our neighborhood, including ours were filled with really a, a gruesome flyer that someone had prepared that showed me. You know, it, it, it with a whip, sort of, sort of whipping people, sort of bringing up these um, sort of racist stereotypes, and 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 um, suggesting that we were, you know, masters over our residents here when all we were doing was trying to simply keep people safe. Talk to me about that, and particularly, and I want to come back to this a few times. Uh, you have a family. You mentioned your daughters, and you adopted a third child from Uganda. Tell me about the impact on your family of 
this kind of ugliness because those flyers were meant to inflame and they did inflame. Yes. Yes, they did. In fact, I just, there was a tweet that someone sent out in the last week where they, they pulled that flyer back up and they, they're continuing to spread it around. But as you mentioned, we did, we, we had a, a third, third, uh, daughter join the family, uh, uh, our, our uh, daughter, we became her permanent legal guardian in 2019 and we were thrilled. She was a, a sophomore in, in high school. And so she saw this flyer and again, clearly racist, uh, undertones of this. And, you know, for her, I, I just, it, that's when it really came home to me that, and you hear that, right? It's like, well, you get into politics and it has an impact on your family. And I understood that. But I never understood it like I did that day, right? And, and then, and there, there have been many uh, other incidents involving our our daughters subsequently. And perhaps when you run for U.S. Senate, you run for the presidency, you think of yourself as living in a fishbowl, but not county board of supervisors. You you don't you don't imagine that, and you don't imagine the psychological toll that this would have on anyone, but particularly with teenage daughters. And so that's part of my story. That's part of our story as a family and how we've dealt with it and the courage of my wife and, and our daughters to share our story together. I'm, I'm so proud of them for that, but I'm, I feel a lot of guilt for it too, quite frankly, because if I hadn't made that decision to run for office, they would have never had to deal with this. And did they hear about it in school? Did they Absolutely. Yeah. No, this is something that, that they heard about. There was a, a particular day when we had a, there was a vote of the Arizona Senate to hold of my colleagues and I in, in contempt. This was around the election. Yeah. You wouldn't surrender the ballots. That's right. The ballots and the, and the tabulation machines. And, you know, I had one daughter by this point was now uh, a, a freshman at Gonzaga and she's calling like, trying to frantically get a hold of my wife. W what's going on with dad? Is dad in jail? This is what I'm hearing. Another daughter, she was still in, in high school and she literally, you know, heard this news and, and collapsed in the hallway. Well, you had, you, had, you had also written them, had you not prepared them for the worst. And so they, that probably, they, they were anticipating something horrible happening. Yeah, they were. I wanted them to understand my thinking, why, you know, my colleagues and I had drawn a line in the sand here. Although we had uh, the Arizona State Senate had subpoenaed this information, we wanted to make sure that we were not violating the law. Again, as a lawyer, I always come back to this. I felt like I've just been trying to follow the law. I'm not trying to make a political statement here, but unfortunately, in this politicized environment, you have folks going to this extent. Uh, where if it were not for the courage of Paul Boyer, the one Republican state senator who voted against that resolution to hold us in contempt, we would have likely been uh, detained again, just for doing our job. So I was trying, I was, I was very conscious and my wife and I, I were both very conscious as parents to try and train, make sure the girls had a lesson out of this. And the lesson was that you have to stand up for what you believe in, even when it can have a negative impact on you professionally and as a person. Yeah. We, we should talk about the run-up to that moment because you saw the storm clouds gathering in 2020 as the election approached and some of the static that President Trump was raising about sort of projectively 
about whether the election was going to be an honest, legitimate election or not. When did you start sort of getting concerned about that rhetoric? And when did you start worrying about what that might mean? I was aware of the the statements of of President Trump that he was going to withhold judgment on whether he would acknowledge the results. But there was part of me that thought, well, it's this bluster, you know, is is he really going to do this? When it became real for all of us here in Maricopa County was a couple of days after the election in November of 2020, when we started seeing folks gathering outside of our tabulation center here, people like Alex Jones coming, uh, Paul Gosar, and challenging the results. And there was a real concern that this large group, I've referred to it as Lollapalooza for the alt-right, that they might, you know, storm the tabulation center and get Remember, this was before January 6th, 2021. And so working with our sheriff, Paul Penzone, it's just been incredible, you know, able to very quickly put up some temporary uh, protection to ensure that those uh, election workers remain safe. But at that point, it became clear to me the rhetoric that we started hearing from Kelly Ward. Chairman of the party. That's right. And that, that this was something different. But throughout it, I am an optimist. I've said that many times over the past few years. I, I always thought that once we got to the brink, you know, there would they would blink and and we would move forward as we have in every other presidential election throughout the history of this country. We should note parenthetically that uh, Paul Penzone defeated Joe Arpaio, who very much was a person of the of that part of the right. And you wonder what would have happened were he in office at the time of all of this. I've thought about that many times. So the questions were about election machines, about just run through the category of charges that were being leveled at you because Arizona was won by 11,000 votes. And it was, you know, it wasn't enough to tip the outcome of the election, but it was a linchpin of the election. And so 11,000 votes aren't very many. Talk about sort of the charges that were leveled and how, what you, how you received them. Yes. Yeah, so machines were really the, the number one and uh, the, the number one objection. And this is when we started hearing about the Dominion machines, because we do use the Dominion machines here in Maricopa County. Questions, suggestions that they could flip votes. And then, you know, that, that Hugo Chavez, you know, built the machines and, and we started hearing about you know, Italian satellites and, and, and there was a plane, allegedly there was a plane that came from China and landed at Sky Harbor Airport here in Phoenix with ballots that were injected. Uh, the, the traditional one with your background from Chicago, you're familiar with the dead people voting. Um, and, and, and so, uh, I had a variety of these and Kelly Ward on the day that we voted to certify the election would texted me many of these allegations. As a lawyer um, and as an elected official, it was my job, I felt, to to track down each and every one of these allegations, as fanciful as they might seem. I was starting to understand the focus that was on Maricopa County and that people needed to, you know, I, I've, I've voted to certify many elections, both at the city council and at Maricopa County. And it's usually sort of, you know, just ministerial. It's a ministerial, yeah. Yeah. I knew 
I knew that this was going to be different. And I felt that it was very important. And I, I'd like to think that this is when we started to really develop this approach of, of, of maximum transparency with Maricopa County elections. I wanted this to be a very transparent process for the people to see what questions were being raised and getting answers to them. Was your original inclination to believe that by doing that, that people would see the sort of lunacy of some of these charges and would dismiss them? That was part of it. But honestly, it was also, let's get to the bottom of this. If our folks couldn't answer these questions, that would raise, uh, you know, dire concerns on my part. But they could. They did. Um, and I was satisfied. And that's why I voted to certify the election in November of 2020. And when you did that, did you fear for your safety? Did you fear for your family's safety? It's interesting because that evening, um, so this was back during COVID protocols. So there was no public in the auditorium. It ended up being about a two and a half hour long meeting. Again, just to certify the election. So unprecedented. And, but we could hear people outside of the auditorium, you know, chanting and banging on drums. It was a little, a little unsettling, I'll admit. But uh, as we left the auditorium, uh, we were walked to our cars by the um, security services. And that, I, I can't remember ever having that happen before as an elected official. This was, a, this was foreign to me at the time. Um, but I thought, you know, they were just, they were just trying to be extra careful. Uh, and this was a prudent measure, but that was really the beginning in many ways of, of what became a new way of new normal, uh, unfortunately, for those of us associated with elections. You had to, from time to time, move your family from your home. You stayed in Airbnbs and other places because of threats and concerns. Yeah, that's right. Again, this is not the sort of thing that you would anticipate at the local level, you know. Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, but we were advised to do that either, either we were staying in, you know, Airbnbs, undisclosed locations, or we were in our house, but we had sheriff's deputies or other law enforcement outside of the house uh, overnight. So um, you just don't expect that. No. And that must've been terrible for your kids. It was. And, you know, e each kid is different, right? And we know that everyone is different. Some, some were terrified some you know took it more in stride but as a family it had a significantly negative impact that no one expected and this went on for a long time because your state senate you said that the president of the state senate who was a republican told you that she knew that these charges were uh unfounded but that she felt she had to carry through presumably under political pressure to to, and they and this went on for months. This led to that point where they subpoenaed ballots, the ballots, the machines, and everything, and and you guys drew a line. And they brought in their own auditor, if you can call this outfit that, these cyber ninjas from Florida who had close ties to Trump and the Republicans. And they carried on a months-long audit. And what did the audit find? Well, after going through all that, the, the audit found... Um, that uh, Joe Biden actually received more votes in Maricopa County than even we had reported in the elections department. But we now know that those were completely made up numbers. Their hand count was a farce. 
Uh, we, we know that is they have begrudgingly turned over documents, turned over text messages. This was nothing more than a grift, which I don't think any of us anticipated. This was an effort they, they determined to raise money uh, and to sow further doubt about elections. And what is so sad to me is that these folks were looking for a willing, I'll say it, co-conspirator uh, to, 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 to perform an audit like this. And I'm so sad that it was my state and the state Senate here in my state that agreed to, to allow this to, to fester. And, and then really we started seeing folks in other parts of the country then calling for a quote, Arizona style audit, which it was no audit at all. Hey, hey, Bill, you must have uh, watched this case of Dominion versus Fox News with great interest. And I'm struck by the fact that as we sit here today, two thirds of Republicans still believe that the election was illegitimate, that it was fraudulent in some way. And a lot of that has to do with where they're getting their so-called news from or information from. And that's also you know, outgrowths of that and right-wing media outlets is where people like you have been demonized. What's the way out? Is your, is your part, how do you free your party from that? And is there a way to free your party from it? Because you went through this again in 2022. You have a candidate for governor in your state, Carrie Lake, who lost and continues to this day to suggest, because there were some printer issues in Maricopa County, that the election was stolen from her and and basically rallying people to take up arms. Yeah. So, uh, so there's a lot there to unpack. Um, but I can tell you that I have made the decision to remain a Republican because I believe there are a lot of, again, the polls show that it's, it's unfortunately a minority, um, who believe that Joe Biden in fact won in 2020. Uh, it's a minority who do not believe that there's a significant amount of, of systemic fraud in our elections. And I place the blame primarily on the leaders of our own party. Um, we as Republicans, you know, I thought a, a lot about this and I think Republicans, we tend to be more sort of, we respect authority and kind of follow our leaders and our leaders across the board have either raised significant questions about our elections, or they've remained silent. It is such a small few of us who have raised our voices in support of the truth and in support of the safe and secure elections that we have in this country. You know, the, as we call, as we've been called, you know, the Maricopa Republicans, and then uh, Rusty Bowers, of course, Adam Kinzinger, Liz, Liz Cheney. But I, I think that it's going to take people to have the courage to stand up and say, I'm a conservative Republican, perhaps, you know, I'm pro-life. These are all the things I believe in. And oh, by the way, I also think we have safe and secure election. I think that Joe Biden won in 2020. And I think we can beat Joe Biden in 2024 for the following reasons. It's up to us. I continue to, you know, people say this democracy is in peril. Well, the only way we get out of this is through the Republican Party, through the Republican Party having a true discussion about who we are, what we believe in, supporting the truth. Uh, and do, do I think it's easy? No, it's, it's going to be very, very difficult. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. 
The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. On Cary Lake, given the death threats that you've had, and given your concerns about your, not just yourself, but your family, what do you think when she repeatedly invokes the Second Amendment and maybe it's time and so on? Because the inference isn't even subtle. Yeah, I, I have great concern by this the normalization of sort of political violence or the suggestion of political violence, regardless of wherever these are Republicans or Democrats. And I'm particularly disappointed in my fellow Republicans who do not call this out. Uh, I've done that. My colleagues have done that. We'll continue to do that. We can debate the issues. We can have a, a hard, hard nose debate. I think that's great. I think uh, that's how we get to good public policy in many ways. But invoking uh, political violence, uh, this is not a game. And it has to stop before someone gets hurt. We are focused here in Maricopa County on keeping our elections workers safe and our voters safe. But, you know, I, my colleagues and I have, uh, are actually victims in prosecutions that are going on right now of folks because words are not, uh, you know, words are real. Words inspire people to do things and violations of election laws by, you know, people threatening elections officials. They're being taken seriously, both by the Department of Justice and here on the local level. So I'll take this opportunity once more to call upon all uh, folks in, in elected office and candidates to knock it off, knock it off before someone gets hurt or even killed. Do you think that she's someone who should be in some way held accountable for her words, or is the, or the elections enough? I think that, again, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not a prosecutor. By trade, I'll leave that to the prosecutors to decide whether crimes have been committed. But I can tell you, as a human, this is wrong. This is wrong to suggest that, one, we are all committing crimes, because that's what she and many others have suggested, that we're committing crimes, that we're rigging elections, and then tying that to suggesting that, that, you know, we need to be hung, we need to be shot, we need to be poisoned. Uh, it, you know, it's not just her, it's other Republican politicians in this state who have done it, and it needs to stop now. And my fellow Republicans need to start speaking out against it more. The question is whether you think that the, that Republican Party still exists, or at least exists in numbers that are adequate. I think that it can still be done. I think that there is enough of those folks who who have sort of bought into this denialism who can still be brought around. But um you know, it's it's not going to be easy. This is a this is a long-term project. But as uh many people say to me and I couldn't agree more, this democracy must have two healthy parties mm -hmm. to be successful. I, I believe that I believe that myself. You yeah. know, uh, we have this mutual friend, Rusty Bowers, who is the 
I can call him a friend now because he's not running for anything. I don't want to destroy his political career. But I came to know him after he displayed such courage as the Speaker of the House in standing, facing down the President of the United States, who wanted him to do things that were inappropriate to try and tilt the election after the fact in his direction. But he ran for the state Senate after having done that, and he lost handily, handily, two to one. Isn't that sort of where the Republican Party is now? I mean, Donald Trump, as we sit here today, is under two indictments with maybe more pending and is still the front runner for your party's nomination. Yeah, no, I mean, I was very disappointed to see Rusty lose his race. We did have in that same ballot, Tom Galvin, who's one of my colleagues on the Board of Supervisors, who was successful in a primary. Now, he had he had about 40 percent of the vote. And so the folks on the, the, the sort of the election deniers that he was running against, the three of them, they split the vote. So much in the same way that, that Donald Trump has taken advantage of the first uh, past the post, uh, you know, winner take all mm-hmm. primaries, I think that, that those could be used in, to support those like me who believe in the truth. But it, it's it's going to take some luck, right? We need some races like this where there's sort of one of us and three or four of those who are election deniers. And yet you're not you're not running again. So I'm not running again, but I think it's important for people to understand why I'm not running again. This is not a an admission that that I think I can't win. This is a this is a, you know someone here who's who's served in locally elected office for 14 years. Uh, at the end of this term, I will have had eight years on the board of supervisors. I've never viewed myself as a, a professional politician, right? I have other things that I want to do in my life. Um, you know, if if I would have run for re-election, I'll admit it would have been a tough race, as you know, running as a Republican. But this is not an admission that that I can't win an election. It's a much more complicated calculus, uh, much more complex uh, calculus that includes you know, wanting to spend a little bit more time with my family after all that our family has been through. Well, I want to ask you about what you've been through, because one of the other great interests of mine is mental health. And you've been very open about your struggles around these controversies and and these pressures, uh, starting with the pandemic and what happened around it, and through all of these trials involving uh, the elections. Talk to me about that journey, about your own mental health. Yeah, this has been, this has been very difficult for me. I am someone who has, I, I have identified, as you've heard in this podcast, I've identified as a Republican since the earliest memories that I have. I've identified as hopefully someone with integrity. Um, who believes in following the law, the rule of law. And through all of this, that has been questioned over and over again and questioned many times by my friends, my political allies. And over time, I became more and more bitter about what was going on. I was, you know, someone who not only, you know, organized these poll workers, but I really helped build a cadre of Republican election lawyers that the party could look to, to uh, help, uh, you know, ensure the integrity of the elections process. And then to have these people question me, uh, make these awful allegations, uh, and then to not really have my friends stand up for me at all, I, I, I became very bitter. 
And then you, comp- you compound that with the death threats that we uh, dealt with as a family. I-, I found myself, and I didn't even realize it was going on, but my wife made it very clear to me that I was losing you know, who I was. I was distracted. I was bitter. I was not the, the man, the, the husband and the father that I had once been. And then I started to, you know, as COVID restrictions came down, I started to attend more and more events with people like uh, the, the former president of the Senate, Karen Fan, who was a friend of mine who I had worked with on many issues. But now I had been dealing with her as someone suggesting that my colleagues here and the elections workers in Maricopa County and I were violating the law. We were engaging in election fraud. And so I'd go to these events. I couldn't, I couldn't even go up and talk to her, but I'd be in side groups and, 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 and I would become enraged. And that was not me. That's not me. I, I was sort of always known as the level-headed guy. That's what I think people, people liked about me. I wasn't that level-headed guy anymore. I had so much hate and anger. And, and then it really all came to a head in 2022. When a, one of my colleagues here, our county attorney, Alistair Adele, she, she tragically passed away. And so I was at her funeral. I spoke. She's quite young and she was under a lot of pressure yes. herself. Yes. For, for other reasons. Yeah. Abs- absolutely. And so I went to the reception after that funeral and saw many of the, my Republican allies who I hadn't seen in person in quite a while. And, and one of them in, in particular, one of my fellow Republican election lawyers, I started to talk to him about it. And he said, you know, I just find all this stuff, this ele- alleged election fraud, all, all just very boring. And, and, and something, you know, it just lit a fire inside of me. And my wife was with me and she grabbed me by the arm and said, you got to stop this. You need to go to therapy. I don't know who you are. I don't know this man standing in front of me. And so within a week, I was in therapy, never gone to therapy before. Um, and we know, you know, we know the stories, of, particularly as men, right? We're told, suck it up, right? Rub some yeah. dirt on it and move on. Mm-hmm. Particularly an elected official, right? Viewed as kind of a, a sign of weakness. What's wrong with you? Is there something wrong? A character defect, yeah. Yes, and so I, I did it, um, but I did it online, right? I wasn't going to go out, necessarily go out and march into a, into a psychologist's office, but I, I did it online because I felt comfortable with it. And wow, what a difference. What a difference it made for me. I didn't realize how much I needed this. Um, and to, to hear from, from my therapist, that I had PTSD, which I, 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 I winced at, you know, I'm like, I don't have PTSD, you know, this is politics, right? First responders have PTSD, veterans, you know, Vietnam veterans, veterans of, of the wars in the Middle East. This wasn't PTSD, but for the first time, you know, I heard someone tell me that and, and in some ways it gave me peace that, you know, this is tough what I'm dealing with, this trauma. And I need to accept that and start to address it. And you've made progress, obviously. And has, has your family healed some from, from this as a result of what you've done? Yes, yes, most definitely. So this was, this was earlier in 2022, and I'm very happy that I had 
uh, gone to gone to therapy because we, as you alluded to, you know, in the 2022 election in November 2022, there's really kind of the, the eyes of the world on us here in Maricopa County. But as a family, we've spoken so openly about this. And I give my wife great credit for that because that's the type of mom she is. That's the type of wife she is. And so we have done a lot of healing. It's, it's, it's an ongoing process, of course, as a family. But I'm so proud of, of my wife and our daughters for supporting me, telling me, reminding me, Dad, there's no shame in this at all. So not only was I willing to take it on, but then, you know, instead going out and talking about it. And, and you know, I, I, I love sports, right? I'm a big Phoenix Suns fan. Yeah. And so the way that I've tried to look at it, it's like, hey, Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, they got to get ready for the big game, right? So maybe it's either they have a sports therapist or, or they need to work with, uh, with uh, the trainer. And it's the same way here. This helped me to get ready for these big moments, like in November of 22, when we had the eyes of the world on us, because people don't want to see their elections official as someone who's, you know, losing their temper, but instead as someone who's ready to defend the elections workers, but also to go out when something, you know, go out there and tell the truth when something like we had, you know, the challenges with the tabulators that it was going to be all right. And here's, how you can still ensure that your vote is counted. By the way, everyone's vote was counted and no one was disenfranchised. There are some things you said that were so important, but I just want to underscore the importance of recognizing uh, that we're all subject to mental illness. We're uh, we're all subject to these moments of stress and anxiety that can be really distorting and destructive. And it is not a weakness of character to get some help. It's important to get uh, help to sort these issues out and to find the light. So good for you in doing that. And I hope everyone who's listening will think about that example, because so many people could benefit who don't and ultimately uh, find themselves in tragic circumstances. So I appreciate that. I want to ask you two things before we go. One is about others who are thinking of running for public office. They'll hear your story. And the question is, why should I subject myself to this? Politics has become, become so ugly. Social media, polarization, you try and do the right thing, you become a target. As someone who believes deeply in democracy, what is your honest answer to these folks? So my honest answer to that would be that um, you you need to understand it's not easy, that you could very well be subjected to these challenges, these threats, even at the local level. But I I can tell them if they care about this country, if they care about our democratic republic, there's nothing like having the opportunity to be there in a moment where a lot is on the line. And there's no other way I can imagine that you can learn more about yourself and what you're made of than being in those positions. No matter you know what the history books say about this time, I know what I did. I know what my colleagues did in this difficult time. And all of this money and, you know, personal prestige that you might get from a job in the private sector. There's nothing like serving your country, serving your community. 
And if all of us who care deeply about this decide to check out, we know who will be left in these positions. And that, that concerns me. I'm taking a break. I'm taking a break at the end of 2024, but I absolutely intend to continue to serve my community. I don't know what that role will be, but I just want people to know, uh, for those of us who decide, you know, not to run again, it doesn't mean we're quitting. It doesn't mean we're giving up. We have to, you have to take a break sometimes too, but I encourage those people who are interested in running for office, do it. There's nothing, nothing more rewarding than, than public service. And here's a related question that I, I think is really important as we look forward to another potentially combustible presidential election just around the corner. You know, you read stories from around the country about election workers who are frankly intimidated and concerned for their safety and their reputations and there being recruitment problems uh, for election workers. And you also see stories about election deniers seizing the election machinery in counties around the country. How concerned are you about that and about the integrity of the next election? Not because the system is inherently corrupt or corruptible, but because good people are afraid to participate as election officials and because uh, election deniers are, ste- are, are grabbing the wheel. So I, I, I always want to be very careful about labeling people who might be interested in serving in elections. We need to have everyone working in elections, regardless of what their political views may be. So I think that's very important, not only because this is, you know, we need to have folks from both parties, eyeballs from, and, and, and that's very important to the process. But also I found we've had the experience where people have come in the door sort of convinced that the system, there's systemic fraud as they learn more, they, they come to learn that it's not. And they can be evangelists for this. So we've seen some of that. But do I have concerns about 2024? Absolutely. Uh, I know that we've seen this in some other counties and other states where people who have run on almost this, you know, platform of, of trying to put their finger on the scale have been elected. But in the end, because there are so many different eyeballs, uh, on the, on the system, uh, I, I've got confidence. The other thing that we're doing here in Maricopa County is we're doing tabletop exercises for insider threats. We're very much focused on that. We have 24 hour, uh, 24 seven live stream cameras on our election facilities. So that should give confidence to those who on the right and the left who think that there's funny business going on, but we will continue to watch these things very carefully. I know that that needs to happen across the board. But the other thing maybe to kind of end on an optimistic tone is that as as we know, there are some people who decided not to participate in elections uh, as workers because of fears. We, I've also met people, particularly young people who've come up to me and they said they've been inspired now by what they've seen to pursue a career in elections administration. I can tell you 10 or 20 years ago, that didn't happen. You go to these elections conferences, and pretty much everyone he asks, how'd you end up in elections? They're like, it was an accident. You know, I don't know how I ended up in it, but I love it. And now those same people, you know, the folks who become first responders who run into burning buildings, uh, like we saw in 9-11, we're starting to see some of those people who are actually inspired. 
to pursue a career in elections administration. So that gives me hope. That's a great optimistic note to stop on. And, and look, uh, I, I say it all the time, democracy is an ongoing battle between hope and cynicism. And uh, right. we can't, can't surrender to uh, cynicism. And you did not, Bill Gates, and you deserve great respect and, and gratitude for that. You certainly have mine, and I appreciate spending this time with you. Well, thank you so much, David. Uh, really wonderful to, sh- to share the story, and, and, and thank you for taking the time to, to have me join you today. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Finder Annenberg. The show is also produced by Jeff Fox and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So are you working with a certified financial planner, a CFP professional who meets rigorous education, training, and ethical standards, and is committed to serving your best interests to prepare you for a more secure future? Certified financial planner certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.